You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, my Real Life family. How are you? So glad you're here. Who's tired? You had the courage to say it. All these other people felt it. And they all said good. Love that. Wake up! All right. So I got something I got to talk to you guys about before we get started. First of all, um, so my wife and I are in this interesting season of our life uh, where we are kind of trying to figure out how we finish well. If we figure we got about 30 years of good ministry left, and what is that going to look like? And what do we want to leave? And how do we finish strong. Like we started pretty well and God's been really good to us. How do we finish better than we started even? And so I've been asking questions of a lot of different guys that have been in ministry um, over over the long haul. We're talking like 30, 40, 50 years they've been in ministry. These are people that have been doing it for a long time and they've had a lot of success and they continued to do well. Like they never settled. They never kind of sat back on that. They never relaxed. They never wrote out their success, whatever, because I want to learn from those people. And, and I ask them all kinds of questions. Like, how did you deal with your family? How did you, you know, what was your work-life balance like? How many times did you preach in a year? What were the, what were the consistent themes, the rhythms in your life that you were able to build success on? And so one of the things that I've been really concerned about is um, how many weeks a year did they preach? And here's why. I don't know if you know this, but Sunday comes every seven days, right? And it's hard to come up with something new to say. 10, 15, 20 years, I've been doing this 25 years, every seven days, you gotta come up with something new. It's hard, and and so eventually what happens is if you're not careful, you kind of get into this rhythm of just saying something and not really having something to say. Does that make sense? You understand the difference in those two? For me, I don't want to ever be in the habit of just getting up here and saying something. I want to get up here with a word. Like, I want God to, to use the time that we have here, that you come out of this place and you're like, God spoke today. And he used an idiot like that, I have hope. <laughs> like, that's, that's really what I'm hoping for. And, and so I asked a lot of questions around that. Like, what does that look like for you in your schedule? And without question, more than 20 pastors, without question, all of them said that in able, to, to be able to do that effectively, you can't preach more than 30 to 35 weeks a year. Now, here's the deal. I've been preaching in the last 10 years since we planted this church between 49 and 42 weeks a year. Which I, on the one hand, I love preaching. Um, I do. But on the other hand, like, it's not healthy. And what winds up happening is the pressure to come up with something every week. That pressure to come up with something really gets to a point where my kids kind of get some mental leftovers. And I refuse to do that to them. Like, I love you guys. But if it meant winning the world and losing my kids, I'd bail out. Like, I love my kids more. And you should want that for me, right? So, so for me, uh, we're going to try to fall into this rhythm of me being able to be healthy 
because I want to be part of the ministry here in Pullman and in Moscow for long, 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 lots more years. Uh, and so in order to do that, I got to get into a position where I can finish well. I, I, it's one of those things where, you know, I have two kids that have moved out of the house. I have a kid who's 17 now that will be 18 next in February. Um, like my, my life is transitioning. And so as I start to look forward to legacy, I want to be able to finish well. And that being said, uh, we're going to start intentionally developing um, preachers that you're going to be able to see more. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not asking them to just get up here and wing it and figure it out. Like, God bless that. When he came here, we were dead center in the Revelation series. He'd been out of ministry for four years, and we were like, hey, get up and preach. <laughs> you know, like almost weekly. Um, he was like, okay, that's a great idea. Like we want to be real intent, not like that. We want to be real intentional about how we're developing people and how we're presenting the message and what we're doing to help people to, to be able to expand. I, I would love when I die in 30 years from now when I get out of the ministry, I would love to have had 150 preachers, people that can take the message forward so that the kingdom of God can come crashing into earth more and more and more. I would love to have that. And so we have some work to do on that. That being said, I wanted to make you aware that you'll be able to see more. Some of them are staff members. Some of them will be even maybe staff members from the Moscow campus that come over here. Um, some of them will be key volunteers, key leaders in our church. And that's awesome. I love all of that. But please trust me, we're, we're trying to be very strategic and intentional about how we're developing them so that it's not just, hey, get up there so that Aaron can have a week off so he doesn't leave. <laughs> like that's not where we're at. That's not even close to where we're at. I don't want to go there. And so what we're doing is trying to keep things healthy. You with me? So I wanted to let you know that that's coming. Uh, we're introducing this series. This series is called Taking Your Mountain, and it's a seven-week series. Here's the premise of the series. In culture, if you want to own a culture, there are seven strategic pieces of culture that you need to own in order to do that. Now, here's the deal. The number seven are, isn't sacred. You can be like, well, there's eight or nine or six. Okay, but I think there's seven. So um, that's how many weeks we're going to preach on this. Um, so that's what we're doing over the next seven weeks. Now, the seven, the seven cultures, I want you to think of each one, these seven pieces of culture is like a mountain. And we're going to talk about them as if they're mountains. And so all of us have been placed in one or more of these different mountains. How do we take our mountain? How do we do that? How do we gain influence for the kingdom of God? And I want to be very clear with you. I want you to have influence. I don't want you to be all, oh, I can't be in the front of the lead. I can't, I can't. I want you to lead. I want you to take ground. I want you to be a big name on your mountain. I want you to be a big deal. Why? Because you take the kingdom with you. And there, we get to expand the kingdom. What, what, so these are these seven shapers of culture. This week, we're going to tackle the first one, which is family. And we're living in fascinating times. Um, we're in a, the generation that's coming junior high, high school, and I guess now it's in college. Um, this generation of kids called Generation Z, first generation in the history of the world, family isn't the primary influencer in their life. First generation. Why? Because families are a train wreck in our culture and have been for three generations. 
And so now they're finding other places to influence them. So what I want to talk about today is how I believe that the family mountain can be regained for the kingdom. Now, that being said, I want to put some boundaries on this because for some of us sitting in here, we're like, oh gosh, he's talking about family. This doesn't apply to me at all. I don't have a family. Um, or you feel, for a lot of different reasons, maybe um, you feel orphaned, either uh, by really truly being orphaned or because you felt like you've been cut off from your family or it's like for some, for a lot of us, we're like, I don't have, I don't have kids or I'm not married or I'm, I'm just a college student. So I want to, I want to put, and by the way, I said that tongue in cheek, just a college student. Um, you college students brought the house and we love having you here, especially you ones that care about Jesus enough to stay here over the summer. That's awesome. <laughs> So I want to put some framework on when we're talking about family, what are we talking about? How do we define family? And then kind of what's family's role? And then we'll look at some scripture. That's kind of where we're headed today, okay? So let's throw up the first slide. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about family. For sure, we're talking about parents and kids. And we're going to talk about children and parents and how we interrelate with one another. Yes, absolutely, that's family. How, uh, spouses, marriage, how do we talk with our spouses? And when we talk about um, family, that's certainly going to be a piece of family. Our siblings, brothers and sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, uh, our extended family, all of that, is that part, that's absolutely part of our family. But this is one that I think is really significant. Our spiritual family is a part of this conversation. And this is really critical for you and I to understand. We are all part of a family called Real Life on the Palouse-Pullman campus. And you need to know that because for some of us, our nuclear family will never be what God wants it to be. And if we don't have a church that acts like a family, that means that we will really struggle to become what God has intended us to be. Are you with me? So you and me, like whether you're part of a nuclear family or not, we're part of a church family that carries the same weight, okay? And so I want to give you a picture of kind of what I believe the role of family is in our life. And so let's look at the next slide. The idea of family is that family exists to give us direction. Family becomes a kind of a, a light that shines on the path that we should walk in our life. It, it's, it's directive. Now, uh, that means then that in order for family to properly direct me, I must be called out for who I am. What, what did God put in me that's there that would help give direction to my life. What's there? And that's really critical for us to understand that the nuclear family exists and our church family exists for the purpose of directing our lives by calling out our identity. This is so important to understand. Your primary function as a parent is to give your children direction for their life. Now, what we do is we have a tendency to fall into some traps, okay? One is the trap of protection. For some people, they feel like the role of family is protection. The role of family is I've got to protect you. Now, here's the deal. Does protection have a place in the family? Yes. Yes, it does. But it must fall under the umbrella of protection when my, or under the umbrella of direction. When my toddler wanders out into the street, 
I don't have a directive conversation about how they should feel about their identity in the road. Like, is this really who you're called to be? I don't have that conversation with them when they're standing in the street. I run out and I grab them. Why? Because I'm afraid that they're going to get hit by a car. And that's what we have to understand about protection. Protection is driven by fear. And here's the thing about fear. When you make decisions by fear, you don't make good decisions. Like that's a general truism of life. But fear doesn't make good decisions. Now, it does serve a role in our life. I'm not trying to tell you to be afraid about nothing. But this is why Paul says to Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power. So when you're parenting from a position of fear, you're not parenting from a position of spirit power. You with me? Now, the other end of the world that we fall into is this idea of correction. What I need to do is to make sure that I point out every place that my children are wrong over and over and over. Every time they mess it up, I'm going to call it out. Why? Because I have to know that they're wrong. Church families function this way all the time. Oh, that person's just, they need to know that they're wrong. They need to know that they're wrong. You need to know that you're wrong. You need to know that you're wrong. So I will correct you. I correct you by telling you every place that you're wrong. The problem with that is, and does it have a place in direction? Yes, it does. But the problem with correction being the dominant way that we parent is that it's all about control. So protection is all about fear. Correction is all about control. And control is really, really bad. Because eventually, your child, your friend, your mentor, your whatever, is going to go out on their own, and if you've tried to control them your whole life, they're not going to know how to function in the world. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to make mistakes. Here's the root behind control. The root behind control is when you make a bad choice as a child, it means I'm a bad parent. And I don't want to look bad. Therefore, I want you to be good. Let me tell you the truth. There is no formula for keeping your kids from making mistakes. Kids are hardwired to be stupid. <laughs> they are. And it's part of how they learn. It's part of how they grow and they're like, oh, that, that's why you don't run up against that wall. Because when you bang your head into bricks, bricks win. That's why. Like, oh, oh, that's what mom meant. That's what dad was saying. Oh, there is. But listen, we're hardwired to make mistakes. We are. We're going to make mistakes. The question isn't how do you keep your child from messing up? The question is, when you have a qu uh, conversation with them about the mistakes they made, how do you use that as an opportunity to direct them back into their identity? Does that make sense? This has changed everything for me about how I parent. It's changed how I engage with my wife. Uh, like, let, let me ask you this question. If you had had this growing up, any of you, any of you in here, would that have made a difference for you in your life? If you'd had somebody that would have just called out your identity and helped you understand who you were supposed to be. Anybody that made a difference for you? In your like, uh, yes. The answer is yes. When we have parents that are like, dedicated to calling out the truth of us. 
Because here's the thing. God made you to function a certain way in the world. And he gave you innate realities that are true of you. And they're unique to you. What happens is those things in you will find expression. And when they're not submitted to the Lord or called out and trained, they become really destructive in our life. And what, and what happens then is we learn to hate it. We learn to hate this thing that God put in. Let me give you an example. So I was, had this gal in my office a while back, um, over a year ago now, and she was telling me the story about she grew up in a church where... Um, women were supposed to be seen and not heard, right? Uh, it's not this church. It's not this church, not my marriage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's not this church. So the thing is, she is gifted by God to see situations and opportunities from really interesting angles. Like she's super creative and kind of unique in her perspective. And so she sees two things all the time. All the time she sees, number one, that um, the people that are left out, like when you make a decision, that's going to leave out all these other people. Like she just picks it up right away. And when she asks about it, they, she was told to be quiet. The other thing is, she asks really good why questions. Like, why in the world would you make that decision? Like, if you made that decision, it would go here. But if you made the decision like this, it would go. Like, she's really good at seeing that. The problem is, when you do that to a, a patriarchal leadership, how does that go over if you're female? <laughs> right? So what they told her was, you need to go read the Bible and pray. That's how you're going to cure this. Here's what happened. The more she read the Bible and prayed, the closer she got to God. And the closer she got to God, the more that that thing that God put in her came out. So here's what she did. She went and smoked pot. It's not a joke. It's what she did. Because pot numbed it. Listen, the goal of maturity is that you love about you what God loves about you as much as God loves it. And so for you and I, we've got to be a group of people that helps call out of others what's true of them. Now, you can't make crap up either. You can't be like, may you be a leader. If, if they are a leader, that's great. But if they're not a leader, don't call it out. Because all that you will do is reinforce the inadequacy that they feel when they don't measure up to your expectation of them. A leader is a leader. And it's, it's not more or less. A leader is a leader. And a person who is a follower is okay. We can't have all leaders in the world. In fact, we need a very small percentage of leaders in the world. Don't call out of kids something that isn't there but make sure that you're aware enough of them to call out what they are. So let's start big picture and then we'll kind of ratchet down in, okay? Let's look at a verse here in Ephesians chapter two. This is what it says. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So what's the fundamental truth that we should begin all relationship with? That other person is a masterpiece of God. And we should be looking for opportunities to reinforce that truth, not to call out every place where they fall short. You're not helping them. I don't know if you know this, but generally it's true of human nature that we already don't feel like we measure up. Like some people are narcissistic. They're like, man, I'm amazing. Just ask me. 
some people that's true. But for most of us, like, the fundamental premise is you are tov me'od. That's the, that's the truth that we kept pounding in our one big story series, right? You are made valuable. You're not a mistake. You're not a disappointment. The truth of you is incredible. It's incredible. You're amazed. This is the fundamental premise that we should start all relationships with. Like, take your critical eyes off and put on eyes that start looking for things that God would want to redeem and call that truth out. Call that truth out. Now, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God made you, and he has a purpose for why he made you. You're not a mistake, right? So if we start with that premise in family, then here's what the proverb says. Here's what the proverb says. Start children off in the way that they should go, and even when they're old, they won't return from it. I love this translation of this, by the way. Start children off in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Not the thing that they aren't, but start when they're little, calling out the truth. This has radically shifted the way I parent. I have a 12-year-old daughter. She's Chinese. If you look at our family, you'll know exactly which one she is. Um... She's amazing. She's amazing. Uh, so my daughter, um, yesterday, the Moscow Campus Youth Group had a car wash to raise money to go to camp. And she's not going to be able to go to camp because she has uh, surgery during that same week on her ears, which is another story. Um, but she doesn't, so she's not going to get to go to camp. And she said, Dad, I really want to go to the car wash. I said, really? She goes, yeah, okay. Um, like it was Saturday. She didn't have anything else going on. So I was like, okay. So we took her down there. I went and picked her up. I said, how'd the car wash go? She said, great. We raised a lot of money for kids to go to camp. And I said, yeah, you know, you know that you're not going to be allowed to go to camp, right? She goes, oh yeah, but we helped a lot of kids be able to go to camp. I said, Ellie, you know why you love doing that? It's because you're so generous. Like this is the fifth opportunity that I've had to point that out in the last week. You're so generous, and I love that about you. This was, it was just a side little conversation, but it was an opportunity to reinforce an identity that's true of her. Does that make sense? She proves that truth over and over and over again. The other thing that's cool about it is uh, identity characteristics travel in clusters. Generosity gets coupled with kindness and compassion. Are you with me? Like lying gets coupled with anger and separation. Are you with me? Like identity characteristics travel in clusters. And so as you start to call them out, like you're generous. I'm also reinforcing for her kindness and compassion. Make sense? She's super responsible. And she is like, of all of our kids, our kids are knuckleheads. I love them. They're, they're like, I didn't remember you saying that. Like, <laughs> I said it 10 seconds ago. You know, like that, you guys know that conversation. When we give her a job to do, she does it. Well, the thing is, it's been weird. Recently, she's been like not really, like loading the dishwasher is her job. The dishwasher is her job. It's what, her chore. Um, she's been wanting to do it. But she's always been super responsible. So I get to sit down with her and go, what, okay, so what's, what's going on? Like, you've always been so responsible and it feels like this is slipping. Like, tell, tell me about that. Like, is that, is that consistent with who you are? Does that make sense? 
So there's a, there's a corrective piece to it, but it's all about steering her back to the truth of herself. Live in the truth of yourself. Don't create bad behavior or correct bad behavior. Live in the truth of yourself. You're responsible. Like, does, is this consistent with being responsible? Okay, well, what do we do about that? And I put it all on, I put it all on her responsible heart and she gets to deal with it. Does that make sense? Like this... Train a child up in the way that they should go. Start with them when they're young, and when they're old, they can't leave it. Why? Because it's true of them. It's true of them. Check this out from Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. And fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What do you do when your parents aren't, in your estimation, worthy of honor? You've got to honor your father and mother. What if they aren't worthy of honor? This would be a way. This would be a way to do that, that you would call out the good, the truth of their identity. You don't have, this isn't about letting them all the way back into your life. It's not about not having boundaries. It's not even about being reconnected to them if you don't feel safe about that. It's, it's all about trying to call out the truth of their identity. Find the truth of their identity and reinforce it. What you will do over time, whether you're a parent to a child or a child to a parent, or we're a church family to one another, what you do over time is you retrain them to believe different things about themselves. Think about this. And by the way, this, the fathers don't exasperate your children. This is exactly what I was talking about with parents trying to create in their child something so that the parent can live vicariously through the kid. Don't do that. Don't do that. Call out the truth of them, the good, redeemable, beautiful truth of them. Think about this in a marriage. Like, I don't know if you know this. Uh, I'm not female. I know that I've been confused. I've been it's confusing for some people, but I'm not. I'm 100% mammalian. Um, uh, I've heard that there are a few women in this world that struggle with identity. How am I doing? Is that true? Let me ask you, women. Would it change how you feel about your husband if he spent his energy with you calling out the beauty of your identity? Huh. They're like, oh my goodness. It's completely changed. Listen, listen. It completely changed my marriage as I refuse to say anything about my wife other than the truth of what God says she is. But does she fall short of that sometime? Yeah, so do I. A lot. But I refuse to let her believe that she is anything other than what God says she is because that's the truth. And that changed everything about our marriage. Everything about our marriage. <laughs> Tov mayod. Like it's... Real good. That changed everything. Any, any women in here that would be like, I would love to have a marriage like that? Yeah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let me ask you, for those of you that are dating or are looking for potential spouses down the road, is that the kind of person that you're looking for? 
Is that the kind of person that you're giving your heart to? So why Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart, because it's, it's the wellspring of life. If you don't give your heart to somebody that knows how to call out the beauty of its identity, what they do is they pound it and pound it and pound it, and then they dump you and they give your heart back, but it's all bruised and nasty and broken. And then you start dating again, and you give your heart again, but it's still this bruised thing. And over time, you keep dating these people that are train wrecking your heart. And by the time you actually meet the person you want to spend the rest of your life with, you give them your heart, but it's like, here's this thing. I don't even know what it's called, right? And now that person's got to go, no, no, that's not, that's not who you are. I'm so sorry that the world beat your heart up at that. That's not who you are. Like, we've got to be a people who call out the identity of one another. And we've got to be a church family that does it too because a lot of us are never going to have a nuclear family that will. For whatever reason, mom and dad are gone. Mom and dad are just too broken. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is, as a church family, we can fill that role as people who call out the identity in one another. And that's our role as family, because when we do, we help give direction and purpose to a person's life. Now, there's a couple of passages in your notes, and I really want you to take that home and read it. I don't have time to talk about it. I want you to take it home and read it. Um, When you read it, uh, there's a story of a guy by the name of Elkanah, cool name, uh, and he had a wife named Hannah. He also has another wife who's got an even more stellar name. Um, but Hannah is barren and Elkanah is probably like most husbands. He's probably like 80% moron, but he really tries to do some good things with her. He really tries to do some good things with her. And the story's there. And the story is there that she's crying out to the Lord, but she's barren. She can't have kids. And for her, her identity is all tied up in that. And Elkanah keeps saying, no, you're beloved. That's who you are. And she cries out to the Lord. The Lord gives her a son. But because she has this understanding of identity, her son is Samuel. You guys know Samuel, the story of Samuel. He becomes the last judge. Right next to that is the story of Eli, the high priest, and his sons, Hophni and Pinhas, Phineas, And how... And I don't know what part of this is intentional, but what we do see in the story is every single time that we see Eli talking with his sons, he's always correcting them. He's always telling them what they're doing wrong. He's never given them any support or direction. And the consequences of that are really, really bad. They lose the Ark of the Covenant because of them. Parenting, siblings, Marriage, all of this is tied into this one reality, church family. It's all tied into this one reality. Like you and I should be giving our energies to calling out the identity of other people. And I know that for some of us, we're like, man, I would love to have that done for me. Listen to me. If you want your family members to feel like you have the freedom, they have the freedom to do that for you, do it for them first. Do it for them first. Don't wait for somebody to do it for you. Do it for others first. And what happens is you create a culture that changes in your family. You create a culture that becomes something that people, this is just how we talk with one another. 
right? And I'll give you another example. So I have a 17-year-old son. He has a job. He is a janitor at the Good Sam Retirement Home in Moscow. And he told me the other day, I love this kid. I just, he's just such a good kid. He, he, he said, Dad, I know a lot of people look at my job as a janitor and just think I'm like sweeping carpets and cleaning up poop. He goes, but I, here's how I have it figured. These people only have a few years left in their life, and I want to make them as comfortable as they can be. And I was like, dude. That's what I said. Because when I was 17, that's what we said. He doesn't say that. You know, he says, that's dope. That's what he says. Uh, I said, dude, that, like, you have vision for your job. How cool is that? Well, he got all these accolades. They have a twice a month all staff meeting and they have different uh, people that get what they call kudos. And the kudos are based on how the residents are talking about these people. And the residents love my son. They love him, love him. And so he got all these kudos because he's always so helpful. And, he's, and, and so I really wanted to, as he's telling me this story, I wanted to take this opportunity to like reinforce something about him as I'm listening to it because it's so good. But I didn't want to reinforce performance. Does that make sense? Because the problem with, with a lot of parenting with kids is like we take them and take them to sports and all that stuff and there's nothing wrong with sports but when we're like, man, it was so awesome when you scored that bucket or when you hit that ball or when you blah, blah, blah. We, man, that was amazing. You're incredible. And then when we come to our, their like character and we're like, we don't ever really celebrate that. Well, the kids want to be a part of this performance thing and they believe that that's the only time that they're valuable. Because that's the only thing that mom and dad celebrate. Are you with me? So I didn't want to celebrate performance, like good job being good at your job. What I wanted to celebrate was something deeper. And I looked at him and I said, Gabe, put my hand on his shoulder. I said, Gabe, you are so kind. And he's like, oh, dad. I said, no, 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 look at me. Looked him in the eye. I said, Gabe, you are so kind. And I told him two or three other examples of where I had seen his kindness surface. He started to cry. He's 17 years old. He started to cry. I started to cry. His mom across the room's crying because apparently she's been watching this whole interchange. She's crying all the time anyway. But like it was, it was one of those things where like, the, like our relationship shifted. It shifted because... I took the time to listen and call out the truth of him. Are you with me? Like this only changes everything about everything and how we interrelate with one another. It's one of the reasons why we do small groups. Like if you're not in a small group, you should get in one because what happens is you get to be a part of a community of people that know you deep enough to call out your identity. And that's especially important when we don't have a nuclear family to do that. Like you you got to know that. That matters. There's so many more things I would like to say about this, but I want to land on this. If you want to take back the family mountain, if we want family to be primarily influential again in this, in this country, here's how we get there. You've got to become a group of people who are committed to giving direction to others by calling out the truth, the good of their identity. When we get there, we will be able to change the world one person at a time. And with that in mind, we're going to move to the Lord's table.
Communion is something that we do every week. And if you're new with us, uh, we have an open table. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us can partake. But we want you to hold the elements till the end. And we'll take it all together. And so while they're passing that out, two things are going to happen. Number one, they're going to bring those buckets that Thad talked about down to the front. They're going to start them in the middle. You can just send that to the outside. Put that card in it that Thad talked about earlier. Get that filled out and put that card in it. And then uh, just send it by and they'll pick it up on the outside. The other thing is uh, this communion thing uh, we do every week. Um, If we have an open table, you're welcome to do that, to to partake. If you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us, but we want you to hold the elements to the end. And we'll take those all together. While they're doing that, we're going to work through some implications. Implications are things that we thought were really important points to go home with. Now, for you, it is quite possible that there's lots of other places that you're applying this idea. Like, what what does this look like in my relationship with my parents? What does this look like in my relationship with my kids? What does this look like in my relationship with my friends and coworkers and my church family and my small group? That is all good. That is all good. Wherever the Holy Spirit takes it for you is okay. But we have a couple of things that we want to land the plane with that we think are particularly important. Thank you. I was feeling a little forgotten and neglected and abandoned. Yes, I'm chosen, he said. Uh, So let's look at a first implication. Every single human being is a masterpiece created by God for a purpose. And so the question is, number one, what's yours? And number two, how do you help other people find theirs? How do you help other people find your pur- their purpose? And if you're like, I don't know what mine is, then get in a group of people who are called to co- or committed to calling out one another's purposes. They'll, f- they'll help you figure that out. Like, that's what relationships should be like. Wouldn't that be fun? Next implication. Family is one of the most significant places where we find our identity. And by the way, if you grew up in a home where there was only protection or only correction or too much of one of those things, that marks our identity as well, right? And that's why our church family has got to be a place. We have got to be a place where we call out the truth of a person's identity. We'll talk about this next week because next week we're going to talk about the role of church and culture. What is the church doing here? And I'm actually going to be here. I get to be here two weeks in a row, which I'm really excited about. Um, So uh, that's what we're talking about next week. But we've got to be that group of people because some people aren't going to get that from their family. So we've got to be a group of people who do that. Last implication. To be a part of a family is to safeguard each other's true identity, to call out our true potential to be everything we were made to be. That is what we're doing here. And what I love, uh, I watch parents who do this well with their kids, and I just marvel at it. I envy it, and I want to model it to call out and reinforce, like, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. Because those are kids that are going to step out into the world ready to take it on rather than trying to dodge things that they weren't prepared for. I love taking communion every week because it shows us that God is determined to tell you that you're worthy. Like, you are what he says you are. You're chosen. You're not forsaken. You are what he says you are. And to 
prove it. There's no length that he won't go to to reinforce that truth. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, just give him for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for meaning. Thank you for purpose. Thank you for identity. God, thank you that you cared about each one of us individually enough that you put these things in us that are beautiful and good. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a group of people who love one another enough to call out those good things. Lord, thank you for your grace as we fumble through how to relate to one another well. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.